0: Open in your Bibles to Luke chapter number 4 this evening. Luke chapter number 4. For the past three weeks, we have been studying uh, on the person of Satan. Not so that we would give any glory to the prince of darkness, for no glory belongs to him, but so that we might learn what the wiles of the devil are and understand some of his strategies, that we might be vigilant and sober and prepared for the way that he would seek to attack God's children. And so for three weeks we have studied the three separate times, or tonight will be the third for two weeks and tonight will be the third. We have examined there are three times in Scripture that a historical narrative involving uh, Satan speaking directly with someone is recorded. And the first one that we studied was in Genesis chapter number 3. And there we saw Satan as the antagonist of the brethren the one that provokes God's children to go contrary to God's plan. Last week, we saw Satan as the accuser of God's brethren in the book of Job in the first two chapters, as we saw him standing into the presence of the Lord and trying to hurl accusations at God's servants. Tonight, if the Lord will help us in Luke chapter number 4, we will see him as the allurer of the brethren. Or if I can give you a name that is attributed only one time to him, and it is in Matthew chapter 4, in Matthew's account of this very same story, he is called the tempter. And tonight I want us to take a few moments and see Satan uh, in this particular role and learn something of what we might do, uh, that we might combat the wiles of the devil. The first week we saw an attack on God's Scripture. Satan has always hated the Word of God. Satan still hates the Word of God. Satan has tried throughout history to muzzle the Word of God. He has tried to uh, to burn and destroy the Word of God. But in the day that we live in, his desire is to confuse and to cloud the Word of God to God's children. And there is a campaign in this day that we live in. I don't mean to get up and beat on this drum. It's not our message tonight. But let me just say that things that are not the same are different. Things that are different are not the same. To say that you can have a Bible that reads different than my Bible, but we've got the same Bible, is ludicrous. Now, it's interesting to me that I've never met an NIV-only person. Have you? Have you? I've never met a New American Standard-only person. I've never met a person that said that the Holman Christian Standard uh, perversion of the Bible uh, is in God's inspired Word and the only one which they'll read. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day, and I told them our conviction about the King James Bible. uh, They said, well, I've got a King James, but it's not my primary Bible. I thought to myself, what does that tell you that someone would say a primary Bible? My Bible's not primary tonight, friend. My Bible is preeminent, perfect, infallible, and inspired. And so there's always been a desire to destroy the Word of God. Last week we saw Satan's attack on God's servants. Understand that you, as a child of God, the moment you got born again, and if you've ever sold out to Jesus Christ, then you've got a bullseye and a target painted upon your back. We need to understand that Satan has a, a uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? You can tell me if this is a word or not, whether it is or ain't. I'm going to use it, amen? But a conspiratorial plan against the child of God. But tonight, if the Lord will help us, we want to see Satan's attack on God's Son. At the end of the day, it's always been an attack on God's Son. You see, when people tell us that the uh, written word, is not preserved, they're telling us that the integrity and righteousness of the living Word couldn't be preserved. When they try to tell us that hell is not real, they're trying to tell us uh, that the words and statements of Jesus Christ are not true and that He's not really the Son of God. Uh, Whenever the the various cults tell us uh, the things that they believe, really, at the end of the day, it's an attack on the person of Jesus Christ. For every attack on the Scripture is an attack on the person of Jesus Christ. So it's always been an attack on God's Son. And tonight I want us to take just a few moments and read a few verses and try to get some help from the Scripture and from the Lord tonight. Verse number 1 of Luke chapter 4 says this, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. When they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. That's why I still believe I've got every word of God. Amen. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, Uh, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. And said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the re- through all the region round about and he taught in their synagogues being glorified of all let's pray together heavenly father lord i i pray that you'd help me tonight lord not that i might receive any glory or any attention or any adoration but lord that all the glory might be given to your son jesus christ that we might see him lifted up high and holy in this place God, that You'd help us tonight, not that we glorify the devil. No glory belongs to the devil, Lord. You've robbed him of any glory that he might uh, be entitled to. You've broken his crown. You've crashed his scepter. And Lord, I just pray tonight that You'd help us not to glorify Satan, but to see him uh, for the tempter, for the accuser, for the old serpent that he is and that we might understand something, that we might glorify You in those days of temptation. Lord, we love You tonight. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we read uh, this passage of Scripture, each one of these uh, parts of the series, I've given you a verse to go along uh, with this particular episode in the Scripture. In the first week, we uh, read how that uh, in uh, John chapter number 8, that our Lord looked at the Pharisees and said that ye are of your father the devil, that he is the father of lies. Last week we saw in Revelation chapter number 12 how he is called the accuser of the brethren. And tonight I want to read three verses to you that I believe will give us some insight about our passage that is before us. And they're found in the little book of 1 John, which we've just finished up on Wednesday nights. Chapter number 2. And listen to these three verses, verses 15, 16, and 17. John, writing to a little group of believers, says this, "...love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world..." Now I want you to listen carefully to this. "...the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes..." and the pride of life. Can we all say that together? Would that be okay? Would you say it with me? Let's all say it together. Are you ready? The lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth for ever. Let me read another passage of Scripture to you that we reviewed uh, two weeks ago, and I had no intention of reading this, but I believe that it will help you tonight in understanding something about what Satan is doing. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 6, this is the first time uh, that uh, Satan is speaking in Scripture. It says this, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat." I want you to notice this triune attack that Satan has always placed upon mankind. It's defined for us in 1 John chapter 2, but we see example of it over and over and over again in Scripture. In fact, let me just lay these Scriptures right on top of each other so that you can see them all together. Listen to what it says again in Genesis 3. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, First John two sixteen says, "The lust of the flesh does it not that which we desire with a fleshly desire?" And our passage, our text tonight, uh, the, uh, Satan looked at our Lord and said, "Command this stone to be made bread if you're hungry." Then it says, "Notice again, and uh, that it was pleasant." the eyes. You remember the next thing John spoke of was the lust of the eyes. That which appears good to us, that which would cause us to appear good to others. And you remember the very second thing that Satan did was take him up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And then finally it says, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. John warned us of the pride of of life. Whenever Satan took the Son of God up to that pinnacle, he was trying to get him to reveal himself as the Son of God. Now, that's not the message this evening, but I believe it lays a foundation for us in understanding Satan's approach towards tempting the children of God. Let me say right now, I've often heard people make this statement. Now, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. If you've made this statement, I'm not fussing at you, but I've heard people make this statement before. I've heard people say, well, the Lord... Will never put more on us than we can handle. But do you know that the Bible teaches actually the exact opposite of that ideal? It says in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter, uh, or 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter number 1, Paul was speaking of their time in Asia, and he says that we were pressed out of measure, above strength. Paul saying, God, put more on us than we could bear. He says that we might find the sentence of death in ourselves, that we might put our faith in God, which raiseth the dead. God will many times put more on you than you can bear in and of yourself. You say, why? To get you to crucify the dependence upon yourself, to get you to quit looking to yourself. You say, well, God, bring me to the end of my rope. He sure will to teach you that Christ is tied to the end of that rope. Amen? Amen. He's your sure anchor for the soul. And when you quit depending on yourself, you'll find that you can depend upon Him. But the thought that I think people are trying to convey is what the Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians, where it tells us that God would not suffer us to be tempted above that which we are able, but with, with would with the temptation make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. Nobody ever sins against their own personal will. Everybody that ever sins does so because they want to. Now, I understand that's contrary to this day of relabeling and redefining that we live in. We live in a day where there's no dope heads, there's addicts. We live in a day where there's no drunkards, there's people with diseases. I'm aware that that is very politically incorrect. I believe that we're coming to a time in our country where we're going to have to make up our minds whether we're going to be politically correct or scripturally correct. Somebody say amen right there. We're going to have to make up our mind about these things. Now, I said all that to say this, that God will never put you in a situation where your only option is to sin. Never Ever, ever. God will always make a way of escape. And I find here in Luke chapter number 4 that this attack on God's Son is very, very unique. Let me tell you why it's unique. Because when we see this as the attack on the Son of God, and it is an attack on the Son of God, I believe that the Lord wants us to uniquely see this as an attack on the Son of Man. For we find that though Christ was 100% God, he was also a hundred percent man, and that though Christ had the capacity—listen now—had the capacity to speak the devil into oblivion if he had chosen to do so. Christ could have called ten thousand angels. He could have called the armies of heaven. He could have spoken a word that would have crushed Satan out of existence. Christ didn't do that. Instead, he chose. And I've thought very carefully upon what word I wanted to use at this point. And there's no word that I can find that, that really defines it without doing some damage, but I'll pick the one that I think damages it the least. He chose to disregard his own power and deity and to meet Satan on the same plane and battlefield that God's children would have to meet him on. He could have battled him by speaking him out of existence, but he did not do that. He could have called the armies of heaven, but he did not do that. He could have probably just reminded Satan about the end of the book and that would have shut him up, amen? But he did not do that. Instead, the Son of God uniquely met him in the way that we would have to meet him. And so I think it's important to understand that what we read in this passage before us is something that is given for an example for us. This is not just a theological ideology. Uh, This is not something that is uh, meant to be only in theory. But this is something we are to understand is to be our own approach, for it will be Satan's approach against us, and it can be our approach against him. We find in this past, and I'll, I'll preach here in a second, you stick with me. It takes a lot, the, the taller you're going to build the building, the more foundation you've got you to gotta build. Don't get nervous, amen? But I find that each of these three temptations, each of these three episodes, comes in the way of three different sections that I want to give to you tonight. We are presented first off with an arena of temptation. A context. Somebody say amen to this. There's always a context to our temptation. Most people would tell you, oh, if things hadn't been the way they were, I would have never done that. Well, Satan's aware of that, so he makes sure things are the way they were. There's always a context to our sin. And there's always a context to our temptation. And we find in these three passages here before us that there is a context to their situation. So we see that there is an arena to their temptation. But I want you to notice, secondly, that there is an appeal to the temptation. Let me say that Satan knows he can do more damage coming as an angel of light than he can as a a, a horned and pointy-tailed ugly creature. Uh, this whole idea, I don't know where we got that idea, amen. He's never presented in scripture, uh, in that way, but somebody, uh, long in the, uh, you know, 1400s or something came along and said, this is what I think. Must have been what somebody's mother-in-law looked like, amen. But, uh, somewhere along the lines began to paint the devil in that way. Uh, but that's not how the devil looks. He comes as an angel of light. So there's an appeal to these temptations. There's something about this temptation that would appeal to humankind. Let me say, I'm thankful our Savior did not have a sin nature. Uh, but our uh, Lord and Savior, He also did not merely default to His lack of sin nature. Instead, He met Satan in the way that we will have to. I don't mean that to imply that He was sinful, for we know that in Him was no sin, He knew no sin, He did no sin. But I merely say uh, that uh, the Lord could have just said, well, you know, I've got no sin nature, but He did not do that. Then I want us to notice tonight the answer to these temptations. So there's an arena or a context of these temptations. There is an appeal of these temptations. What was it they appealed to? And then there's an answer that's given. I'm going to tell you that I believe differently than other people do concerning uh, what, well, maybe not everybody, but what a lot of people do. Let me tell you that I do not believe that God's Word is open sesame or abracadabra. I think there's been a misnomer for a long time uh, that if we quote Scripture, if the devil, he'll flee from us. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches if we resist the devil, he'll flee from us. You see, I don't believe that what Christ was doing here was reminding him of these Scriptures, but teaching us a principle upon which we can stand when we're in the moment facing temptation. And that's what I want us to look at tonight. All right, enough of that. Let's get to the preaching. Amen. I want you to notice first off, look at verses 2 through 4. The Bible says... 40 days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. Let me say that this was a temptation of passions, a temptation of that which the flesh longs for. And what was the context? The context was fasting. I have no doubt whatsoever that our Lord was hungry at this time. For 40 days, he had been in the wilderness. He had not eaten anything. He was fasting. And you can imagine how famished that his body was. He had a desire. And it's interesting that in this moment, the very first temptation that Satan seeks to tempt him with is that of what he would desire or what his feelings would be. Can I say that the very first place that Satan's going to attack you is through your feelings? Every single time. You see, the, uh, the devil came to him and said, I know that you're hungry. I know that you desire this. And let me say that not everything that we desire is wrong, but every desire that we have can become wrong when it's outside the boundaries of the Word of God and outside. Uh, listen, anything can become an idol. Anything can become an idol. And we find that the very first context is that of fasting. The devil knows what you want. I don't know if you're aware of that, but he knows what you want. There are certain things we're talking at today. Me and Brother Bill were after the service. And there are certain sins that just do not appeal to me. But then there's other sins that the devil knows I am keenly susceptible to. And you may be here and there may be certain sins that you'd never dream of. They have no appeal to you whatsoever. But then there's something, that besetting sin, that seems to infect and corrupt your life on a consistent basis. The devil knows what he's doing. He's going to target your weakest area first. Some of us have struggled with a certain sin for years and years and years. We need to be keenly aware of that struggle that we've been in. You know that Paul made this statement. Uh, He said, make... No provision for the flesh. You know what that means. You know what a provision is, don't you? Uh, That's making the way or preparing the way for something. Paul said, listen, if there's something in my life uh, that makes me susceptible to a particular sin, Paul says, I want to get it out of my life. The problem with the day that we live in is we want to play footsie with sin. Uh, We want to flirt with sin. Uh, We want to allow it just right up to the door and then not expect it to come in when we open the door. But the reality of things is this... Uh, Sin will always make its way in your life if you leave it anywhere close to your house. We find that it was an arena of fasting, a time of physical weakness. And sometimes, listen carefully to what I'm about to say, sometimes those moments of physical weakness can be our moments of greatest temptation. I'm being honest to you tonight. At times when we don't feel well, times when and listen, there's, there's different kinds of not feeling well. You know that, don't you? times when we physically or emotionally or mentally are not feeling well, we need to understand we are particularly susceptible to the temptations of Satan. Satan knows very well what he's doing. And even of these three temptations, the very first thing that he tried was to come to him in this moment of fasting. What's the appeal? The appeal is fleshly satisfaction. It's interesting to me that all three of the things that Satan tempted the Son of God with would be things he would later on go to do. Uh, He would tempt the Son of God with revealing Himself as the Son of God. And of course, Christ did reveal Himself as the Son of God. He tempted Christ with having possession and authority of all the kingdoms of the world. And can I say that all judgment is committed unto the Son? They're His kingdoms. And I'm pretty sure you read through the Bible, we have a few accounts of Him eating, physically eating, uh, throughout the rest of His life. You see, it wasn't that. It wasn't that the things were wrong intrinsically. It's that in this moment of fasting and temptation, when our Lord had purposed in His mind uh, that He would draw in closer communion with His Father. I didn't say closer relationship. There's no closer relationship than the relationship He had. But in closer communion, spending time with His Father, that the devil came and said, don't you want to feel good instead of your father? Don't you want to feel good? Can I say that fasting is pretty much a uh, bygone practice in the church that we live in today. Uh, I wonder why it is that power seems to be a bygone quality in the church that we live in today. Christ said of certain kinds, he said, this kind cometh forth only by prayer and by fasting. I'd have you to know that there's times when it's good just for you to let your flesh know it's not in charge of you times when you need to let your flesh know that it can't run you the way that it desires to run you. It's not that it was wrong for him to eat bread. But in that moment when he had to choose uh, whether he wanted uh, more of his father or more of what his flesh would desire, he had to make the choice. We see that it was fleshly satisfaction. And you know, there's all kinds of things that the devil will tell you you need. You'd be amazed. Uh, adults, when it comes to their spiritual walk, we turn into little kids. You, you remember what it was like when your kid was little, don't you? And uh, and they'd be watching on the TV. And uh, every commercial break, they had a new Christmas list. You remember what that was like? Everything, And, and they'd come to you, and you know what they'd say? I know that they said this, because I said this, and all kids say this. They'd come to you and say, Daddy! Mama! I can't live without this. And you'd chuckle, and you'd say, Oh, yes, you can and yet oftentimes we're faced with temptation and we look towards heaven and we say, Father, I can't live without this. I wonder how many times God looks down in a benevolent smile and says, Oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. I can't live without the approval of mankind. I can't live without the bigger home. than I can't live without all of these things. Oh, yes, you can. How do you do that? Look at the answer. What did he say? He says in verse number 4, And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. You see, the arena was that of fasting or fleshly desire. Uh, The temptation was fleshly satisfaction. Go ahead. If it feels good, do it. And what was the answer? Was fulfillment in the Scripture. What was the Lord saying? He was saying, "I've got everything I need in my Father and in His Word." Can I say to you tonight that there's no problem that Jesus can't fix? Now, I'm not opposed to getting help. I'm not. A, I'm not opposed. I, I have people ask me sometimes, you know, what do you think about, you know, about medicine and and, and nerve stuff? And I, I usually tell people most folks I know need to be on more medicine. Amen. I'm not opposed to that uh, altogether. But let me say this: when it's a spiritual problem, the pill bottle can't fix it. It's not to say that everything's a spiritual problem. I'm aware. I'm aware that there's chemical and biological issues, and I'm not dismissing that out of hand by any means. But understand that your ultimate fulfillment can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying you totally do away with uh, those kinds of helps, but I'm saying you can't look to those helps to give you your ultimate satisfaction. Uh, It's interesting that he he doesn't say that man shall not live by bread. He says man shall not live by bread alone. Christ is not saying, oh, it's wrong to eat bread. What he's saying is this, the bread can't completely satisfy. And all the help that we might get, praise the Lord for it. I'm thankful for it. It can't make up for that relationship that we need to have with the Lord. That's where you find your fulfillment you won't find fulfillment in anything else. I've known people that have tried to find fulfillment uh, through a drug needle, through a, a, a booze bottle, through illicit relationships, uh, through uh, being a workaholic. Uh, through, and by the way, sometimes being a workaholic can damage your life just as much as being an alcoholic. Amen? And I've seen folks that have tried to find satisfaction, tried to find something to fill that hole in their life. But there's nothing that can fill that hole You see, I don't believe Christ is giving us this so that when Satan comes to tempt us, we can hurl Scripture at him through our words as though it's some kind of abracadabra. Uh, In fact, I find in the Scripture that there was a time when it said of God's people that they draw near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Uh, These are not, listen, these aren't magic words. These are miracle words. Amen. These are not magic words. These are inspired words, and there's a difference. That means that the author is the one that's in control of these. Amen? Uh, so I don't believe that uh, that uh, the Son of God is trying to teach us here, well, you know, when Satan comes, tries to get you to do wrong, just quote this passage and boom. I think what he's trying to do is equip us with how we resist that temptation. Not merely through hurling Scripture. And I'm not saying it's wrong to quote Scripture. It's always good to quote Scripture. But I'm saying to have our mind wrapped around this fact, that when Satan comes to us and says, you need that, you need that relationship, you need to put that uh, whatever that substance is in your body, you need that nicer car, you need that bigger house, forget about your walk with the Lord and just strive after those things. We can look with our eyes fixed on heaven and say, oh no, godliness with contentment is great gain. I have everything I need in Jesus Christ. If I leave this world uh, as a prince or as a pauper, I'm still a child of the king. doesn't matter what I've got in this world. I find satisfaction in him. We find a temptation of passions. And then notice the second thing. Look at verse number 5. And the devil taking him up into a high mountain. By the way, it's interesting that in this temptation he does not question his deity. And that's significant, that in two of these he questions the Son of God's deity. But in this one he does not question his deity. You know why? (laughs) You know why? Because Satan knew he was the Son of God. He knew He was the Son of God. He believed it more than the modern theologians do today, that Jesus is the Son of God. And you know, uh, he didn't want to remind Him that He was the Son of God because he's getting ready to try to offer the whole world to Him. The problem is this. Uh, the world, though it may be in His control right now, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, he didn't want to remind Him who it was that had really had an inheritance uh, of this world and of all of its kingdom. There's coming a day. The book of Revelation talks about Him coming, and He's crowned with many crowns. Many crowns. That's for all the kingdoms. Amen. Many crowns. He's the King of what? He's the King of kings, and He's the Lord of lords. So He tempts Him this second time. It says, and the devil taking him up into a high mountain showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. That's significant. Matthew's account does not include uh, that particular phrase. Uh, You say, why? Because Matthew's account was trying to get us to understand something a little bit different. Not because it's wrong or different, amen, but it was trying to give us a different emphasis. Matthew's account does not include that little phrase, moment of time, but that phrase is significant because it tells us uh, that Jesus was uh, viewing all... All of the kingdoms of the entire world from the beginning till the end of time, not just those kingdoms that were in existence, at that, not just the Roman Empire, but every kingdom and every empire that's ever stood. And he saw them in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. We find that the first temptation is a temptation of passions. But the second temptation is a temptation of possessions. Now, what's the arena of this temptation? The arena is that of poverty. Imagine if you're the Son of God. Uh, here He's left the glory on high and ivory palaces, and He's condescended to this world, to a place uh, where He has not uh, a place to lay His head, that the uh, foxes have their holes, and the birds of the air have their nest, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay His head. Here He is, a king without a crown and without a kingdom that's visible to anyone. Here He is in poverty. And the devil comes along and says, If you'll just worship, I'll give you everything. I'll give you everything. Can I say that there's times in our life when we have to make a choice between doing the right thing and doing the profitable thing? Isn't that true? If you've ever been in the business arena, then you know what it is to have to choose between your convictions and between your checkbook. And you know what it is to have to make those decisions. Can I say that the only way, listen now, the only way to really get ahead in this world is playing this world's game. Now, you say, preacher, that's discouraging. No, no, it's not discouraging for the child of God. You say, why? Because we're not even citizens of this world. Amen? We're not even citizens of this world. And sometimes believers, I'll go ahead and tell you, it's amazing to me that the prosperity gospel has such a footing in this world that we live in. It's amazing to me that, that an entire heresy, and it is a heresy, it is a heresy, Uh, Any preacher that talks to you about planting a financial seed, you need to run from him. Amen? It is a heresy. And in this world that we live in, it's amazing to me that a prosperity gospel should take such a footing when it's so abundantly evident and clear in Scripture that the Son of God Himself did not live in prosperity when He walked this earth. But sometimes still as Christians we get discouraged. Funny thing about money, you need it. Isn't that right? Right? If you don't, if you don't believe that, and you need to give me some of yours, amen. You need it. That's the world we live in. But though we need it, that doesn't mean we bow to it. Doesn't mean we bow to it. We see that the context was poverty. What was what was the appeal? The arena was poverty. What was the appeal? Was promotion through compromise? If you'll bow to me, I'll give you now. Something that you, listen, I don't even know, this is so big I don't even know how to say it. But do you understand that we have here the perfect example of Satan's desire upon the life of the children of God? Not that you would, not that you would trade that which is good for that which is bad, but that you would trade that which is the greatest for that which is lesser, that you would trade that which is eternal for that which is temporal. What about this power that Satan said he had? He said, these kingdoms are mine, and to whomsoever will I give it. Was that true? I believe it was. I believe that was true. I believe that the Lord sets them up and, and, and puts them down. I'm aware of that. But I have no doubt that there is a satanic conspiracy in this world that we live in. And I have no doubt seeing the way that not just our country is run, but the way that just about every country is run. That those in power, by and large, have a complete disregard for the things of God. Isn't that true? Look at the world we live in. I believe that's true. So I believe in a sense he could. But here's the funny thing. You get to the back of the book and that fellow that claimed he had all the power, he's bound in chains and cast into a bottomless pit for a thousand years while a different kingdom is reigning. And then he's brought out of that pit and he's let run loose for a little while uh, so that uh, he can tempt those that had never been tempted before. Then the Bible says that he's taken and cast into the lake of fire. You see, he has that authority, but it's a temporal authority. What about Jesus Christ? What does the Bible say about his throne? In in, uh, Romans uh, chapter number 8, it says, uh, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, until the end come. And all things shall be delivered up. All things shall be delivered. Uh, he's seated at the right hand of God until his enemies be made his footstool. Oh, yes, Satan has a little authority and a little power right now, but it is a temporal authority. The authority of the Son of God is an eternal authority. And Satan has always desired for you to trade that which is eternally precious for that which is beggarly and temporal. We need to understand what this thing of compromise is. This thing of compromise is taking God's standards and giving them up so that we can have men's applause. That's the world we live in today. I just said a moment ago, if you're going to advance in this world, you're going to have to play this world's games. Say, what reckon we ought to do, preacher? Well, I just reckon we ought not advance. We just ought to go with God and do it God's way. Because what we're doing is we're trading that which is pure and eternal for that which is corrupt and temporal. What's the answer? Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. The preeminence of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that on Calvary He bought paid for you? You belong to Him, and He's the only one that's worthy of your praise. He's worthy of all of it, but He's the only one that's worthy of your praise. Do you understand that there's coming a day when every knee should bow and every tongue should confess? So you can bow the knee now to Satan for a little temporal advancement, but like it or not, you will bow the knee to the Son of God. What will it mean on that day? I wonder for so many of us who we're trying to claw our way ahead, trying to get our, make our way through this life a better job, a better promotion, a better raise, a better home, a better car. You say, preacher, are you against those things? No, God bless you. If, if God blesses you with those things, that's wonderful. But when we have to give up what God's given us to get them, we put ourselves in a bad way. When we have to give up our walk with the Lord for Him, we have put ourselves in a bad way. When we have to play that game, then we've put ourselves in a bad way. We find that this was a temptation of possessions. But notice finally, and I'll be done, we see not only a temptation of passions and a temptation of possessions, but I want you to notice the very last temptation. Look at verse number 9. And He brought Him to Jerusalem and set Him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto Him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give His angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up Lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now there's a little context that has to be given to this passage so that you can understand it. Now we're gonna we're gonna do an experiment, okay? A theoretical experiment. Now the Bible says how many you believe that every promise in the book is mine? You believe that? Well, you're wrong, because every promise in the book ain't yours, Amen. There's lots of promises in that book that ain't yours. This is one of them. You see, if I was to climb up on top of this uh, roof, and if I was to say, "Oh, the Word of God says that He'll give His angels charge over thee, lest thou dash thy foot against us," that sound good, one. That sound. We'd probably be on the news, Amen. I'll tell you, after the next thing that's going to happen, we'd be on the news no matter what. Because if I set foot off that roof and fell down, you wouldn't hear the angels flutter of wings. You'd hear, as I hit that pavement. Because that promise ain't got anything to do with me. You see, this was a promise that was unique to the divine Son of God. Spoke of His appointment with Calvary that nothing would detour Him from Calvary, that that was God's appointed place for God to pour out His wrath upon His Son as He is the propitiation for your sins, for my sins, for the sins of the whole world. What is the arena of this temptation? I would say that it is an arena of disregard. The Bible says He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. He's the Son of God. But particularly at this time in his ministry, no one knows and no one cares. And there in that moment where he has been disregarded of the world, where the world has no care who he is, here he is, the Lord of glory, and they call him the carpenter's son. They call him one born of fornication. In this context of disregard, what do they try to tempt him with? to deviate from God's will and plan for his life. You see, it was not the appointed time. And in fact, time and time throughout the Gospels, uh, Christ uh, would heal somebody and He'd say, Tell no man. Tell no man. Don't proclaim it. Don't tell folks. Or there were times when He would speak to them of His death and He would say, Don't tell anyone. Or He'd speak of His deity and He'd say, Don't tell anyone. Why? Because nothing would detour Him from Calvary. There were times when they tried to take and forcibly crown him as kings, and he hid himself through the crowd and left them and escaped from. Nothing would detour him from Calvary. Could I say to you that if Satan can talk you into walking away from the will of God, he's got your life wrecked. In those moments of disregard where the will of God seems a little fuzzy, where things aren't turning out how we thought that they would, oftentimes the devil will come along and say, why don't you just prove to all these folks who you really are? Hey, you're a child of God. Why don't you just tell them, prove it? Why don't you just do it your way and go ahead and advance yourself? And if the devil can talk us out of the will of God, he's made a wreck of our lives. We need to get it through our head that it's either the will of God or it's heartache and sorrow. There's no middle ground. There's no debate. There's no discussion. It's either the will of God or it's heartache and it's sorrow. Sometimes we all feel a little disregarded. Every one of us. We all feel a little disregarded sometimes. Sometimes it's difficult being a Christian. No one's ever said that to you. I'm glad I said it to you tonight. Because somebody needs to tell you that, that. Sometimes it's difficult being a Christian. Sometimes whoever uh, said that it was a bed of roses didn't warn you that roses have thorns too. And that's the reality of things. And sometimes it's very, very tempting to seek to walk away from the will of God for our life. So It's just too tough. It's just too difficult. Can't do it anymore, Lord. Can't walk this path anymore. It's too tough. I'm throwing in the towel. Lord, I'm doing things my way. What's the answer? The answer is the dignifying of God. He said, it is said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. What is the Lord saying to us in this passage? He's saying God is still God. God is the one with the authority. God is the one that has the rule over my life and your life. Christ said this. He said, I do always those things that please my Father. We need to get it through our head that if we're here to please men, we're going to make a wreck of our lives. And at the end of the day, you never will please them either. But if you learn to live for an audience of one, If you learn to care more about what God in heaven thinks of your life than what anyone else does, you'll find the peace and joy that very few know, that of a Christian that's secure in their walk with the Lord, not seeking to please men. Understand... You know, you know what we all we all turn, and, and I I don't know what the theme has been today. I, the Lord has heard the cry and bondage and suffering of our young people in this church. That must be it, because I've just griped at adults all day today. But I don't know what it is, but we all turn into kids when it becomes the will of God. You remember what it was like when your kid was little? And you remember what it was like when someone, and if you ever found out who, you'd probably kill him. You'd write them out of your will. You'd kill, you'd physically strangle them to death if you learned who it was that taught your child that little word, three letters, W-H-Y. Why? Why? And you remember that phase that your child went into where he'd say, it's time to go to bed. Why? Because we've got to get up in the morning. Why? Well, we got to do stuff tomorrow. Why? Well, daddy's got to go to work tomorrow. Why? Well, because we're all going to starve dead and die. Now go to bed. That's Why? And yet we've become the very same thing in our Christian walk. When we say, Lord, why is it I can't have that new job? It says, I've got something better for you. Why, Lord, why can't I have? You say, preacher, is it a sin to ask why? It's human to ask why. Take that for what it's worth. It's human to ask why. Does that mean it's a sin? No. Does that mean it's smart? No. We're all the better when we learn how to trust Him. We learn, we all have times we ask why. But we need to understand that no matter what we think about things, He's still God. He's still in charge. He's still in control. He's still the one on the throne. Not you, Him. He's still on the throne. And you're either going to do this thing God's way or you're going to make a mess of it. That's your choice. Well, I don't know what them motivational preachers would think about that, but that's the truth. That's your choice tonight. You either follow the will of God or you make a mess of things. That's it. There's no middle ground. If our young people could understand this truth, it'd save them a whole heaping world of heartache. If our adults could learn this truth, it'd give them peace in their older years that would sustain them to the grave, that God is God and He's on the throne and He's in control. That's not our play. Oh, one day we will reign with Him. But right now, we're here as a servant. To serve Him day in, day out. We all face these temptations. And I see that the Scripture equips us to the dealing with them. Maybe tonight there's been something you've been struggling with and God's give you some help. Why don't you make your way to the altar and thank Him for that help? Maybe you're here tonight and there's something you've been struggling with and you just want to depend on the Lord more. Whatever it is, I want you to feel liberty to come.